Welcome back to iNet Purpose, where we are exploring the untold stories of leaders who are reshaping the world through purpose-driven initiatives. In this podcast, we are joined by the extraordinary Kat Bruce, scientist, athlete, businesswoman, and environmental activist. She's the founder of Nature Metrics, a pioneering company in the field of collecting environmental DNA to help companies monitor and manage their environmental impact. She's also a technical expert at the British Standards Institute, board director at the Sea Kelp Foundation, founding member of the UK Business and Biodiversity Forum, board member at the Ropes of Hope, and skipper of Sea Change, a GB Row all-woman expedition launching later this year. In this conversation, she explains how her life path changed after an expedition to the Amazon, to getting her PhD in biology and becoming an entrepreneur leading a global business dealing with some of the largest companies and environmental stakeholders on this planet. Stay tuned to find out about the pivotal role protecting our natural ecosystems plays in meeting the Paris Agreement climate targets and the coming wave of accountability policies. Ladies and gentlemen, Kat Bruce. Good morning, Kat. Good morning, Joe. Uh, welcome to Hynet Purpose. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, you've come down from Oxford this morning. We, we really appreciate the, the time um, that you've taken to come down and see us. So we met uh, almost two years ago. Um, just over two years, I think. Just over two years ago. And at the time, um, it was down Southampton, uh, was putting together a boat to row around Great Britain. It was Olympians, special forces, me staring at my shoes, wondering why I was there. Um, and one lady. Which that would yourself, be me. Which was yourself. And uh, uh, you were this uh, great energy uh, within the group. And it was also quite difficult to figure out what it was you were doing. Um, and you were about to head off to go uh, measure the environment in some far-flung place. And uh, you sort of sounded like a Indiana Jones of not of architecture and, and that, but of environmental uh, history. Um, and then it was over a year later when we were talking to our friends at 2150, I found out that you were the founder um, of a extremely exciting uh, business. Um, um, and we got to... Um, meet again over that so it's a it's it's a delight to be able to spend the time with you today likewise so you do have an articulation of your purpose do you want to hit us with that at the at the top of this I do yeah um so I think fundamentally my purpose is about doing what I can to contribute to a world where we don't anymore plunder our long-term natural wealth for the sake of short-term material wealth. Okay. And uh, natural wealth would include what? It actually includes the foundations of everything our civilization is built upon. So water, healthy soils, forests that transpire and give us the oxygen that we need, oceans that perform all of the services we rely on to sequester carbon and to create healthy coastlines that give us fish that we can eat you know the there is no the the world that we've built for ourselves just fundamentally would not exist today in the shape that it is if we didn't have that foundation of natural services and natural resources that it's all built upon but we're using it at a rate that it can't replenish and so it's going to run out. You know, this is not about just saving the world for saving the earth or saving biodiversity or nature for its own sake. It's actually about creating a world that we can continue to live in. 
Okay. So um, if we could take a, a, a step back um, to where this passion um, started. So before you studied um, classics at Oxford and then became a biologist, what was young cat like? So young cat grew up uh, very outdoorsy. Okay. Um, my, and, and really my background was, was set very much by my grandparents and my mum's family. My grandparents were both professors of geography. Um, so my grandmother was a glaciologist and spent a lot of time in the 1950s and 60s leading big tours up glaciers, including often with some of her kids tagging along. Uh, my grandfather studied ancient lake, uh, lake formations in Africa. Um, and uh, so my mum and her brothers and sisters used to be bundled into a Land Rover and driven across Europe and went off across the ocean to Africa and spent time in schools in Ghana. And we all used to sit in the evenings at weekends um, a few times a year and get out all of the old slides um, from from those times, in, particularly in Africa, um, and sort of look at the the adventures that, that they'd all had. And so I had that kind of background of... of you know, the world is a big and exciting and beautiful and diverse place. Um, I'm not sure I fully recognised that as I was growing up. Um, and I remember very distinctly uh, a period where all of my friends used to go on holiday to exciting places like centre parks. And I would be dragged up more Alps um, and spend my holidays walking, walking through mountains, which there was certainly a time when that was deeply uncool. Um, I was not a cool person growing up um but you know i think more and more i appreciate the richness of of what i did have can we go to that period where you um uh you'd finished studying um classics at oxford and then you somehow found yourself in the amazon listening to bird calls and uh the start of your career as a biologist yes um so actually i didn't finish studying classics at oxford i'd say one of the things that sort of runs through my life is I'm not afraid to take a sidestep um, and to sort of course correct when I feel like things aren't going the right way. I've always had this sense you've only got one life and you, know, you, you get to choose to a large extent what you do with it. And if you don't feel like you're going in the right direction, do something else. Um, so I had a very strong sense. I'd, I'd always been very academic. I loved classics because of the stories that it involved and the way particularly in you know, 5th century BC, Greece, you had this melting pot of sort of language and theatre and politics and literature and everything coming together. Um, so I found myself uh, at Oxford, uh, which is sort of the classic place to do classics, um, and actually pulling everything into apart into tiny pieces and it felt like, you know, overanalyzing things to the extent that you lost the, the magic and the story. And I sort of found myself wondering what I was doing there, really. Um, and so I took quite a quite an impulsive decision to um, stop doing that. Uh, I didn't actually know what I was going to do with myself. Um, I worked for for a while um, in a pub to raise some money. It's pretty miserable. Uh, and my boss said, "Why don't you go and you know feed lions in Africa or something?" I think yeah. I literally went home and googled feed lions in Africa <laughs> <laughs> expedition. But there was a wonderful um, there. There was an absolutely a wonderful thing. There was as soon as she said that, I was like, "Oh yeah, of course. That's what you know. I just need to get myself far away into a different world um, and and figure out you know who I am and and what I want to do with myself." Um, so I joined an expedition um, to the Ecuadorian Amazon, which there shouldn't have been any space on, but someone had just dropped out and it was leaving in two months' time. 
Um, so I turned up in the Amazon, you know, 100 miles from the nearest road um, in pristine primary rainforest, um, living with a, a local indigenous community um, in the Pastaza region um, and doing biodiversity surveys to try to get the community wanted to get reserve status on their land um, because they knew there was oil underneath and the northern Ecuadorian Amazon had been absolutely decimated by the oil exploration that had gone on there. Um, none of which I knew any about anything about when I arrived. But uh, in the unlikeliest of all transferable skills, because I'd done so much ancient Greek theatre and had to learn a lot of you know Greek verse by ear, um, I turned out to be really good at learning bird calls. So I got uh, very quickly became the person who was sort of really most useful and m most involved in the in the research and the science work that we were doing because I could identify the the birds and it was this amazing you know in a, a rainforest is it's it's so diverse and it's so rich but you actually don't see much because the trees are so thick <laughs> so, so you have this sense that things are there and are very close to you and you'll see tracks and signs of them but you don't see a lot so being able to being able to recognize which birds were calling where sort of gave you this um this sort of vision into the forest that you didn't have otherwise and by the end of the three months, um, I think everybody else was very ready to go back to civilization. Um, and I felt the complete opposite um, and was sort of more more comfortable and, and happy than I had been anywhere for a long time. Wow. But that you then um, did a PhD. Um, can you tell us about what you did in terms of... Yeah. So I did... Actually, before I did the PhD, I... I um, I spent a couple of years going back and forth to the Amazon, doing uh, working in research stations, leading some expeditions. Um, you know, really interesting to actually go. I travelled down rivers where there was oil and gas exploration happening, um, and spent time with the communities along the river, sort of understanding um, what was going on there, both from a social and environmental perspective. Um, I'd been really there was a book I'd read that that was an absolute catalyst for me, which is a book called Savages. Um, a, by a New York journalist um, who'd gone and spent time with the Warani tribe in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Um, and it was about their fight against the, the oil companies. Um, and, uh, and so I really wanted to, to get, get a better understanding of that link between uh, the sort of natural environment and, um, and the social side of things um and you know i didn't want to go and do just pure conservation because a lot of it was about just looking at things from the wildlife side but to me it's always been um you can't solve that without solving the social side because on the ground the people who are chopping down the trees and going to work for the oil and gas companies they just need to get some money to put on food on the table for their families so you've got to look at it holistically so i spent a couple of years um really sort of um building up that that um, understanding and experience. And that was what that enabled me to go and apply for an undergraduate degree in wildlife biology with my A-levels in Latin and Greek and <laughs> classical <laughs> civilization and things. Um, but I had that sort of practical field experience. So um, I meant to just go and do a, a wildlife biology degree um, and uh, use that to be able to go back to the Amazon and really spend my life doing conservation on the ground. Um, uh, but I'm not good at doing things just a little bit. Um, they tend to escalate. So okay. uh, undergrad turns into a master's, um, during which I started trying some genetics because I was aware I'd avoided genetics in my undergrad. So I thought I'd better have a go at that. 
tried it in my master's, really didn't enjoy it, wasn't very good at it. So I thought I better get over that. I better go and do a PhD that involves some genetics. So, you know, I don't like being bad at things. Um, and, uh, and I found a PhD that was back in the Amazon working on population genetics of an Amazonian ant plant system, um, which took me back out there to do field work, but it was very theoretical ecology. Okay. Um, and about halfway through that, I suddenly went, mm, who really cares how far these ants are moving um, and how they're coexisting with each other? Uh, and I was going to, I actually tried to quit my PhD and move to London and learn about business because I'd been taking over the, row, I, or I'd been uh, sort of captain of the university rowing club at the same time. So I was sitting on the one hand doing the PhD, you know, months and months and months in a lab, pipetting tiny amounts of colourless liquid into other tiny amounts of colourless liquid. Uh, and then on the other hand, building a team and setting goals and figuring out how we were going to reach them. And I was like, that's what I love doing. Okay. Um, so I thought I'm going to go and, and actually learn about business. Um, and at exactly that moment, my, my PhD supervisor said, well, I'm sort of bored of the ant stuff too. But there's this thing you can do now where you can take a whole trap of insects and instead of having to look at them under a microscope for months and months to identify what everything is and turn it into data, you can just stick it in a food processor, turn the whole thing into a soup and sequence the soup in one go. And you get a full full readout of the diversity. <laughs> and actually you can do 100 soups at once. So you can generate data at this sort of, you know, orders of magnitude bigger scale than has been possible and he was like I think it's going to be the future of environmental monitoring so if you want to do business why don't we have a go at that finish off your PhD doing that and if it seems like something that there could be a market for we can start our own business and that was nature metrics wow so you were throwing all the ants into the uh, Nutribullet and uh, you were looking at that afterwards and went actually there's there's some serious data that we can use here a lot faster and that was the more than the germ of the idea behind nature metrics. How did you how did you make the jump from um, uh, having that understanding to actually have a having a business that was looking for clients and building technology to allow you to scale it? Yeah, um, that was a that was a challenge um, to start with because I knew nothing about businesses. I'd never worked in a business, um, let alone having sort of started or run one. So. Uh, we actually used the end of my PhD to do a few pilot projects with different end users um, to sort of prove whether the data was actually useful for them. So we were looking at contexts from, uh, you know, restoration and figuring out whether restoration is working and what's the best way of doing it. Um, we looked at uh, forestry. So looking at what's the best way to, to manage um, forests uh, for biodiversity um, and also an agricultural study and all of them. Uh, had a direct, you know, there was a direct use for the data um, in terms of like, really tangible decision making. Um, so that gave us the confidence to say, look, there are there are people out there who would value this data if they were able to access it, but they can't through the research world. It's it's not consistent enough, and you can't do things at scale. Um, so I went and worked before we started the company properly. I went and worked for a year at Wira, which was a Telefonica's startup accelerator in central London. Um, and I was just an intern on the accelerator team, um, but it gave me a chance to see across 
you know, about 25 different startups, you know, how, what they were doing, how they were going about it, all the different options for raising capital, how you put together a business plan, how you do a pitch, how you find investors, all of those sorts of things. It was an amazing experience, actually. Um, so that sort of gave me, I guess, the the sort of building blocks of what I needed to then put together my own business plan and my own pitch. And at the same time, a couple of things were happening. One was that, you know, we started off with insects and squishing insects up into a soup. Yep. There was a lot of research happening behind the scenes that was showing that actually you didn't need to get insects and squish them up. There's DNA everywhere. So you could take the exact same approach of sequencing a mixed sample of lots of different bits of DNA when you've got the DNA from the environment. So particularly from water, everything, you know, we know that we go around leaving DNA everywhere. You know, you touch something, you leave a fingerprint, there's a trace of DNA. Every species is going around leaving a trail of DNA and it ends up in the soil, in the air and in the water. Um, so, so we'll come back to the environmental DNA. Yeah. eDNA is this is this critical. E yeah. So, so um, the uh, been able to um, use that more accurately and efficiently. And then I guess there was a timing element to, um, you know, back to beginning of man i'm sure we've been measuring biodiversity in lots of different ways but there was an acceleration taking place around the time that your company was um being set up yeah there well actually we were really just before there was an acceleration taking place so we came in at a place where there were there were certain industries and sectors that already had to do biodiversity assessment um actually as part of their license to operate um, so, so what, what, what sectors w would have historically had a, a, a need to be able to measure their impact on biodiversity? So generally the industries that have quite a, you know, quite a heavy impact on yeah. the natural world. Um, so we're talking about sort of construction, infrastructure, energy, mining, um, you know, it's part of their, um, yeah, license to operate from the government. They have to do environmental impact assessments. And as part of the environmental impact assessment, they have to do biodiversity. So they have to do baselining. They have to show how much they've lost and they have to restore as much as they can. You know, these, these, these sort of frameworks and, and requirements have been around for a while. So what it meant was there was a market of big companies out there that were spending a lot of money already on biodiversity assessment and having to mobilize huge teams of people to go into you know, really remote places. And you'd have to sit in that team, you'd have a frog expert and a bird expert and a mammal expert and an insect expert or probably a whole team of each. Um, and so, you know, that that's incredibly expensive. And they would come back with, you know, really very, very patchy data um, that wasn't actually useful for decision making. So it was a big headache and a big cost for them. So we could go in straight away and say, actually, we've got tools now which are faster, cheaper, put fewer of your contractors or staff at risk um, and give you better data that can feed much more quickly into actual decision making. Um, so that was, that was um, you know, very, I don't think our company would have got off the ground without that. Um, took a bit of explaining to investors who are used to investing in, you know, apps and software um, products. Um, but, uh, and, and the first, you know, I used to be asked all the time, you know, who's going to buy this? this surely no one's interested enough in biodiversity to, um, to pay for it. So I had to, you know, walk, walk everybody through this, this market. Because environmental impact studies sort of had a bad rep, right? It was a thing that sort of, oh no, we've got to get someone to a bat study and there's a problem with this type of insect, et cetera. Um, where 
what you were bringing was something you were, as you said, faster and a, a real focus on on the data to make better decisions. And I guess create opportunities as well as recognize that there's risks that needed to be managed around a particular project. Absolutely. And I think this is, you know, one of my favorite things about biodiversity data. We often talk about the data from a sort of, you know, compliance or um, sort of data science perspective. But to me, data is also stories. You know, we're we're collecting some water and finding the most incredible species in, you know, really amazing places. We've, you know, we even now I've been doing this for ten years and I look at data sets and I'm like, whoa, we found pygmy hippos and tree kangaroos and like, you know, just amazing species. And actually we see that in our clients. The the excitement that you generate through telling the stories of the species that are there, which people haven't seen. Um, even the people who are on ground in the site won't have seen them uh, and it makes people um, look at their environment and their surroundings in a completely different way. So um, stepping back from nature metrics one second just bigger picture biodiversity the loss of it um, do you have, uh, can you give us some context for where we are at the moment globally is there anything that you point out that identifies how big a problem or opportunity we have? Yeah we're not in a good place um, you know, we've been we've been cutting down our forests and trawling our sea floors and you know just really, really screwing up our natural world for a very, very long time. Um, since nineteen seventy we've lost seventy percent of wild um wildlife populations. seventy um, percent. In the UK we've lost ninety six percent of our forest cover. Um, we've lost 90% of our seagrass, but you know these are ecosystems that are not just nice to have. They, like I said before, they're the foundations of of everything. And now what we're realising is that these ecosystems are absolutely crucial for the fight against climate change as well. 30% of the solution in meeting the par- the goals of the Paris Agreement is going to have to come from natural environments and so natural environments sequestering and locking away carbon for us. Um, and uh, not only are we losing the overall volume of those habitats, but as they degrade and become less healthy, a lot of habitats flip from something that absorbs and carbon and is a carbon sink and helps us out to something that actually produces carbon and becomes a source of carbon. So it's not a linear process. You have these tipping points where suddenly everything flips the, the wrong way. Um, and so the the urgency of investing in protecting and restoring these natural ecosystems um, has, I mean, rocketed up the agenda. Since I remember being the first time I saw sort of uh, climate and biodiversity side by side in a sort of conference heading was about twenty eighteen, end of twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. um, and then um, you know Zach Goldsmith as an individual did an incredible job at embedding nature within the heart of the climate agenda through the um, COP26 in Glasgow. Um, and since then, you know, we we really, it feels like a different world that we're, that we're playing in. And we don't get asked any longer who's going to be interested in paying money to know about nature and biodiversity. Okay, I'm gonna ask that question anyway though. Just uh, so for, for businesses, um, uh, is it, policy that's driving the imperative for them to do more measurement or uh, is it something else? It's a combination. 
Um, so policy is the strongest driver um, and, and always will be. And we've seen things like the, you know, in Europe, the the CSRD. Yeah. I'm going to need to look up what's yeah, <laughs> to remind myself what is a um, corporate sustainability uh, reporting directive. Um, uh, which is which is really you know, will be very very relevant to big companies in in particular. I'm not uh, sure if people are aware of how big it is or how soon it's coming. Right, where it's it's it, uh, next year. It's over. next year, and it's going to be fifty thousand companies that are going to need to report. And what's interesting about these these regulations is that in order for the companies that have to report to report. They're going to need to get information and drive change throughout their supply chains. So even though you know, even though in theory it's just the big companies, this is going to affect the whole private sector. And how much is biodiversity part of that um, policy drive? It's an aspect of it. Yeah. Um, you know, there are there are many other aspects to it too. But but in the past we wouldn't have seen biodiversity included in in these things. And I think the links between biodiversity and climate are, are much stronger than they were we've also seen um so in uh we for gosh i can't remember exactly when it was over 10 years ago there was the the tcfd was launched which is the task force for climate related um financial disclosures yeah. um which was uh, encouraging and then requiring businesses to report on on their climate um performance and we've just seen um this within the last year the launch of the tnfd um, which is the nature equivalent of the task force for nature-related financial disclosures. Now, that's not mandatory at the moment, um, but it does do dovetail very nicely with the CSRD. Um, but what's been interesting is that what it, it there's suddenly a feeling from businesses that policy and regulation is coming down the road. There's an inevitability about it. They are going to have to be accountable for their impacts on nature. And so they've all started to take a look and they've lifted up the bonnet and a lot of, and in particularly in some sectors, particularly ones that have got an agricultural or forestry um, sort of supply chain um, foundation, they've sort of gone, oh, blimey. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, this isn't just about compliance and ticking the boxes. This is about the long-term sustainability of our business and our industry. Um, and they're the ones that we're seeing you know, really starting to take take action. So regenerative farming suddenly is, you know, uh, becoming a huge, huge sector. Okay, so um, can you take us back then to uh, the technological developments that we have now that are making this process much better than it used to be? Yeah, so on in terms of the um, actual ability to generate data to show change, um, which which is at the heart of being able to report your impact, um, we have a whole suite of tools and technologies that are allowing us to generate data at much bigger scales um, than it's been possible before. So um, environmental DNA is sort of one pillar of that. So that's when you're on the ground, being able to take samples of the environment. How, how are we doing that? So we work with water and soil, um, and we're just starting to do some experiments with air as well. Okay. Um, but if I take water as an example, the... You know, I said, as I said earlier, everything's shedding DNA all of the time and a lot of that ends up in the water. So that's both the DNA from the things that live in the water, uh, but also the DNA of things that live on the land and, ha and it gets washed into the water. So the water becomes like, you know, whether it's pond, stream, lake, ocean, it's like a soup of genetic material of the whole ecosystem. So if you get a sample of water in an ocean, what distance could you potentially pick up DNA from? Uh, 
Well, that's where we start getting into some of the, the finer details of, of all of this. So actually, the ocean is a speci- uh, specifically interesting example. When we started off, we thought there's not going to be any spatial signal in the ocean because there's so much movement of, of water. Um, and it turns out actually the opposite is true. It's a very, very localized signal that you get in the ocean because it's a big space. It's very dilute. So these little traces of DNA get sort of diluted out quite quite quickly. Um, so in the ocean, it's very local. Um, so, I mean, literally within sort of, you know, tens of tens of meters, you can see the changes between one habitat and, and the next. Um, in rivers, DNA can move downstream um, some distance. So we have to do a bit of modeling to sort of understand where things actually were based on where we found their DNA. Um, and in lakes and ponds, again, it's very, very localized. Um, so, but it, it gives you, de- you know, it's transformative in a couple of ways. One is that sampling it is so easy you literally just pull up water in a syringe and push it through a filter um i've gone head to head with my colleague's five-year-old daughter and you can't tell the difference between the data that came from her filter and the one that came from mine which i hope says more about the technology than my skills as a scientist but um you know it means we can put it in the hands of anybody anywhere in the world to get good data um and that data includes everything from the microbiome and the bacteria and things that are linked to pollution all the way up to your sort of charismatic wildlife and your tree kangaroos and pygmy hippos and um, bats. How do we do it in soil? So um, water through a filter. Water through uh, a filter. Soil, uh, you literally just take small small soil cores um, and pop them in a pot with some preservative solution. Um, okay. So it's super, super simple. Okay. So the eDNA is one side. We yeah. That pairs up really nicely with tools like um, acoustic monitoring, so using sound to identify species and, and monitor the health of ecosystems. And then you've got satellites from above. And what we're starting to do a lot of now is putting all of those tools and technologies together so that you can understand in a very three-dimensional way how environments are changing. Um, so in some of these projects, you've got a lot of different stakeholders involved. Um, where do you sit amongst that? Are you sometimes in the center of the project or you've been brought in on one side of it? And uh, uh, what have you learned about trying to get all those stakeholders to, you know, share and, and face the right direction? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And increasingly, we're finding that we're involved in, in projects that do have a lot of stakeholders um, and, and actually stakeholders that haven't worked together before. Um, so the... We, we come in at different places and, and in different projects, we're brought in by different um, different stakeholders. Often actually in those complex projects, we come in with the conservation organizations on the ground because they tend to be implementing partners. Okay. Um, but but that's, that's also developing and evolving and changing. But what's really interesting is, you know, we're to, to have the shift that we need to have in terms of, you know, how we, how we interact with the natural world and actually how we rewire finance to come into to come down to the ground to to do the restoration and the protection that we need. Um, we're having to bring together stakeholders that have never worked together before, have very, very little trust and have no common language whatsoever. And that's one of the, there's two big barriers to getting money down onto the ground. One is that uh, businesses don't know the locations of their assets. Data can't flow unless you can do that. So that that's a huge issue. And the other is um, the the lack of trust between stakeholders, and particularly, you know, you're talking about like banks and ecologists. Yeah. You literally say the word taxonomy, and they run in opposite directions. Yeah. Um, so, so actually, what we're finding is that the data itself 
almost can become that common language that connects all of the stakeholders. They all use it in different ways and at different levels and at different sort of levels of aggregation. But if the data that's being used to report at the top level at the banks and the corporates is derived from the same data that's being used on the ground to inform decision-making and management, suddenly you've got the trust and you've got the transparency and you can accelerate date the flows of finance onto the ground. So the data helps build the trust. What, because it's a more open conversation, people are looking at something that, that's objective? Uh, yeah, because, you know, the the it, it goes both ways, right? At the top, you've got the the banks and the finances sort of go, oh, I don't know. Don't know if we trust those guys on the ground that look a bit sort of earthy and don't speak our language at all. And at the same time, the people on the ground who have been crying out for more money for ever to do all these things uh, and who know what to do, absolutely yep. know what to do. Um, they go, mm, I know we said we wanted more money, but we don't really know if we like that money. And we don't, it's coming with different words and different strings attached and we're not quite sure about it. Um, and the, uh, and actually, if, if they look at something where if you're on the ground and you're like, we're connected into this sort of value chain and they're reporting on our biodiversity outcomes by just clicking a button on a computer and never even looking at the ground. Yeah. They've just come up with some sort of black box number. Like, what does that mean? So can you can you give us a, an actual case study or an, uh, an example that pulls it together where, you know, there was actually a common purpose to what was happening and it did create a win-win rather than you've got one side that wants to develop finance and then you've got people on the ground who are, you know, getting the negative impact from that. So, I mean, that conversation is what is happening everywhere now. So yeah. a lot of those um, sort of coalitions are, are starting to, to come together. Um, and in the next year, we need to see pilot projects actually happening on the ground. Um, but, you know, we're talking to everybody from the banks, the insurance industry, uh, sort of innovative nature finance organizations, um, the NGOs on the ground, the corporates who are interested to fund biodiversity credits, the projects on the ground that need funding. There's a huge amount of complexity um, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of unknowns that need to be worked out, including you know how do these markets actually work? Um, on the on the demand side. So it sounds like it's still early. That it that there's not a lot of these projects. To that the side of that yeah. side of thing that side of things is very early, but moving very fast. Okay. Um, and you know, I mean, to the extent that at COP twenty seven in Egypt, I remember hearing biodiversity credits mentioned a couple of times, and everyone sort of went, "Oh no, mm, that's a bit dangerous. Don't go down that route." A year later, at COP twenty eight in Dubai biodiversity credits panels sessions happening everywhere and people talking about really you know starting to to pilot it so it's moving it's moving extremely fast there's a lot of there are risks um so you know the biggest risks are that you um you know you create create promises on the ground that don't come through um and you actually do harm to to projects and people um on the ground there's also re reputational risks for businesses who get involved early and commit money to things that that sort of turn out to have you know, to be imperfect um and and then they get you know a lot of a lot of controversy in the in the media so uh, a lot of the conversation that we're hearing at the moment is about the need to create these sort of safe spaces and sandboxes so that we can do innovation because essentially this is you know financial innovation and playing with our whole economic system to try to rewire it 
yeah. we know from, you know, as, as from the startup world, when you innovate, if you're going to innovate fast, you're going to get some things wrong and that's part of the process and it's okay because you learn a lot from getting things wrong. So the question is, how can we create spaces where we can get things wrong, but in a safe way that doesn't cause harm and that allows us to, to move forward? So we, we, we've, we've had environmental scientists there for a long time measuring um, the impact of projects going back a couple of decades. The, uh, the method of doing it, you think, is getting better. We're collecting way more data and being able to use it in lots of cool and amazing ways. We then have the policy changing at speed, businesses wanting to be part of this, and then we're getting new markets opening up in terms of carbon credits and other areas that are opportunities more than than, than just trying to deal with the risks of, of the impact that we, we have through business. Is that a fair description of sort of broadly where we are at the moment? Yeah, I think that that's a, I think that's a good summary of, of where we are at the moment. You know, we've got a, there's a $700 billion gap between the amount that's spent on nature today and the amount that needs to be spent on nature in order to meet the global goals. Um, so there's a whole new set of global goals agreed at the end of last year, um, which essentially says you want to halt, halt and revert the loss of biodiversity by 2030. To do that, we're going to need a lot more money. Um, so we need that money needs to come from a wide variety of sources, but certainly including the private sector. So uh, private sector, the certain industries are much higher impact. Um, uh, you've, you've got to work with these groups, I guess. There's, it's not going to work if you try and say, well, look, we're not going to ever work for an oil and gas company or something else. Um, how, how do you think about that? How does your team think about it? Because I know your organization is very purpose-driven in, in what they do. Um, how, how do you reconcile what you're doing, particularly working with some of these organizations that other people would, would never want to deal with? Yeah, I mean, partly by keeping that a very open conversation at our executive and board level um, about you know how we make decisions and what we're comfortable with and why we're making the decisions that that we are. But fundamentally, I mean, as I said, it's the it's been the heavy impact industries that actually have been the ones that have been you know creating the the pathway for biodiversity monitoring because they're the ones that have been having to do it for a long time. Um, you know, we. A, you can't say you're going to create a big new mainstream technology if you don't work with the industries that actually need to to use it um, and to establish it and, and give you that scale. Um, B, you know, you've got to think about what's the what what are the aspects that you can influence. If we say we're not going to do the biodiversity monitoring for companies, you know, at the end of the day, that's not going to affect whether they go and drill or do their operations it's going to affect how uh how accountable they are for their impacts on nature that's the bit that we can help with um so you know we want to drive greater transparency greater accountability on the part on the part of businesses for the impacts that they have on on the natural world um separately you know a lot of us spend a lot of time in our um private lives sort of you know lobbying for for change in terms of moving away from fossil fuels and um yeah, but 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 th- these industries will really move the dial if you can get them to behave better, and and you are finding there's more of an open door today than it was before, and some of them are actually getting good at it. Yeah, there's definitely you know we like we work with um, mining companies that that have made pretty ambitious um, commitments um, and that are trialing and being piloting some of the new um, regulatory frameworks um, and. You know, it needs to be a collective effort. We need to to move forward. There's lots of things about the the world that I 
that I wish were different and that, it, you know, I will push in every way that I can to, to change. But in terms of the, you know, who we work with on a commercial basis, doing the biodiversity assessment, you know, the biggest impact that we can have is in driving accountability around nature impacts. Uh, how many clients has Nature Metrics got today? Do you know? Uh, today, we have worked with over 500 different clients um, across a whole range of sectors. So yeah, the sort of heavy impact industries, but also actually a lot of our work comes from the conservation sector. We work with most of the international conservation NGOs all over the world. Um, we work with um, increasingly in the sort of regenerative agriculture space. Um, and and then now, yeah, as I say, sort of uh, quite a few pilots that are linked to um, nature finance. Um, how big is the team? We're about 140. 140. And growth for you guys has looked like what for the last few years? So we're now really investing in the, the data science and the data delivery systems. So um, building out the you know the software um, and the the dashboards that enable our clients to interact with their data. Because some of the description that we did on the how you collect the uh, the, the water sample, the soil sample, sounds like quite old fashioned in some ways, but actually the information that you're getting from what you're collecting is at a whole other level than it was a few years ago. Yeah, it's a it's a funny one because we spend a lot of time. You know, when we talk to to investors, we're um, often focusing on the sort of you know the big data end of things and, and that scalability and, and it being sort of a high tech way of generating data. On the ground, it's really low tech and that was deliberate because um, we want this to be something that, that you can use anywhere. You know, most of the places that have the greatest needs for measurement and, and management of biodiversity and our impacts are the places that are pretty hard to access. Um, so yeah, on the on the ground, it, it's it's pretty simple. Um, certainly a big part of our scalability in the next few years is about moving um, to a more integrated biodiversity measurement capability that pulls in some of the methods that mean where you don't have to be on the ground. So we're at the moment building in a lot of the remote sensing and satellite analysis so that we can look at ecosystems and habitats without having to go to the field or before you go to the field. Um, so that's going to sort of, that's the next phase of our growth that's going to drive the, the sort of next element of our scalability. Because that was going to be, uh, I guess, my next question. What, what, what is the vision for the, for the business from, from here? It's, it's what you've described there or there's something? Yeah, so we want to be able to link, we want to be able to link data flows all the way from the ground to corporate reporting. Um, and that means, you know, we, we've been, our original business plan was sort of build from the bottom up work could you know work on the ground with the the geekiest ecologists clients to start with which puts a lot of scrutiny on the you know the, the uh, quality of our data um, and then gradually sort of uh, sim uh, simplify that up aggregate it up summarize the metrics at the site level at the portfolio level etc um, we're massively accelerating that because driven by TNFD and CSRD and everything suddenly businesses are coming to us at the sort of top corporate level and saying hey we've just signed up to do a TNFD pilot or something and I've got to figure out what that means. Where do I start? And so, so we're having to accelerate the build of the elements of our business which um, are at that very high level, sort of just understanding, okay, what's where? Where are your priority sites? And then you go down into those and you can set your KPIs and you can build your monitoring plan and then we can deliver from the bottom up. Because we're looking at scope one, scope two, scope three reporting all the way through their supply chain then they yeah 
There's, so scope How are they going to get the information? Itself? Well, they honestly, they're just going to have to. I mean, it's 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 really interesting. I think the the nature um, policies are coming along at the right time in a way when businesses are starting to think about scope three for for climate reporting. Um, but the you know too often you have a really exciting conversation with a business who really want to do something and you say so have you got locations of you know where your impacts are on the ground or do you you know who are your suppliers and they go, oh no we don't know that well you can't with nature with nature in particular it's place-based you know if you're going to say you're having a positive impact on nature something somewhere has to change on the ground um, and that information has to be able to flow through through the value chain so and it's not to you know it it it's to some extent it's still convenient for for businesses to be able to say they don't know where their assets are we need to get to a place where that's not okay um where actually we have to be able to do that and yes that's going to need some redesigning of systems and procurement approaches and and everything but that is not beyond us we can do this so at one level you started doing project work then how do we integrate loads of different information into one platform and then describe the third bit is going to be how do we put that into a, a, a reporting package that the companies can use, make decisions on, and with their policy requirements, et cetera. Um, um, you're going to have to fund that growth over the next few years. Will you, will you, because you, you've got some um, fantastic uh, investors already, but you'll look to continue to bring in more investors. Is that the likely plan? Yeah, exactly. So we've got a actually a great set of of impact VCs um, already already around the table. Um, we're going to be doing a Series B um, fundraise this year um, because we yeah, want to accelerate the the growth given the opportunity that's in front of us, um, and given the fact that we've actually got you know so much market penetration, we're working, we're delivering to you know a lot of these big multinational companies already. So um, there's an opportunity for us also to be a route to market for other sort of tools and, and innovations um, in, in the nature technology space. Um, so, we, yeah, we want to capitalise on that. So we're going to be raising raising a fund um, this year. How many countries are you in? Are you got data sets on there? We've got data sets from, I think the last count was 105 countries. Um, so, yeah, a lot, you know, a, across a lot of Africa, Latin America, Asia. Can we, uh, can we switch direction and talk about your next expedition yeah um um what are you doing in june this year <laughs> well in some ways my next expedition is quite similar to my last expedition um so uh as you mentioned uh, at the beginning we first met um as as part of a, a squad putting together a team for gb row challenge um which is a um a race around great britain um unsupported and non-stop rowing in ocean rowing boats um and and collecting environmental data as you go slow moving boats can pick up lots of data as they go along yeah yeah exactly i mean boats in general actually are a really big sort of untapped opportunity for for collecting data and at, at nature metrics we're starting to work with the cruise industry for example to collect data as we go but they must have loads of data on the oceans around great britain right yeah you'd think but we really really don't um not collected in a not collected in a systematic way um the the level of knowledge is is tiny i mean you know, one of the things when I started Nature Metrics, I remember the State of Nature report came out and they said, big headline, 60% of species are, are in decline. Small headline, we actually only have trends for 5% of species. And this is wow. in the UK, which has very few species and a lot of ecologists. Um, so, so so this project of Rhone around so the project, So the project 
Um, it's very round great written in boats that have been custom modified to collect environmental DNA, microplastics, um, acoustics. We've got rudder and a microphone in the rudder um, and temperature and salinity. Um, so we can help to start building a, a, a whole map of the um, condition and, and health of the UK coastal environment. And, you know, for researchers to go out there and gather data on that scale and to commission the sorts of boats and research equipment that would be needed would be, you know, millions and millions of pounds. So it's taking opportunities of people who want to go and do daft adventures um, and, uh, and are going to be out there anyway um, and, and coming back with some, some really useful data. So there's a partnership between GB Row Challenge and the University of Portsmouth um, to collect this data initially over a four-year period. And I got involved in the, the squad that we were both part of originally because they wanted to add the eDNA in sort of quite last minute. So I was brought down as an eDNA expert and it was discovered that I was also a rower um, and had done lots of expeditions. Um, and uh, so, yeah, a bit a bit unexpectedly ended up in a crew last year. Um, and and it was wonderful and amazing and one of the best experiences I've, I've ever had. Um, but I came back feeling like we could do more with it, um, particularly from a storytelling perspective, because a lot of the narrative was about, you know, we're collecting this data because of all of these threats and the pollution and all of these you know really pretty depressing um things which is absolutely true but I also know from my day job that there are so many projects all the way around the coast of Great Britain that are doing restoration that are bringing back and regenerating the seas and nature has this incredible ability to bounce back given half a chance um, and so there are, you know, there's there's stories all the way around the coastlines of things that can and are being done to make mm. a difference. Um, and I want to tell those stories. So I put together a crew of this time all women. So last time I did it, it was me and five very large men. Um, so we might be a bit slower this time, but uh, we're all women who work in the fields of nature and climate from different angles and perspectives. So we can use our own experience and um, and professional perspectives um, to be able to tell tell the stories, um, and also you know make we we want to bring the stories of businesses that are starting to think about their impacts on the ocean and and taking positive action there. Because as you said, there are loads of great projects going on, and and it's a, a theme that we, we find quite a lot. Is like how do you how do you get people to collaborate, collaborate and integrate the uh, knowledge that they already have, um, and this can be an amazing way to do it. Uh, on the physical challenge, unsupported, but people can still come over in a boat and give you you know a cup of soup, or you can, you know you you can uh, go up on the beach and have a beer going around. That would very much be breaking the rules um so the the unsupported element of it um means we can't once we set off so we set off from tower bridge um in london go down the thames turn right when you get to the sea all the way around um once we set off from tower bridge we can't take anything else onto the boat so we have to take with us everything that we're going to use we can hand off if we see a passing fisherman or friends come out to see us we can give give our rubbish bags yeah. um to yeah. to them um, but no, we can't can't take anything on. So we're going to be rowing uh, in two hour shifts. So two hours on, two hours off, twenty four hours a day for probably. The fastest a women's crew has done it is forty four days. Okay, so we'll be under forty four days. Yeah, we say a little more than a month. And uh, it's a bit dangerous. You you go across the Irish Sea. You actually almost touch the coast of Ireland on, mm -hmm. on the way heading up north, straight and, up the uh, middle of the Irish Sea. Yeah. Um. So you've got lots of boats and uh, potential for bad weather around June time as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's. Um, I mean, it's 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 the UK. 
there's they would be lucky to get round without running into some sort of bad weather um so we have to be pretty prepared for that um the crew we put together have everybody's got experience at sea before um which will really really help i mean that's actually much more important than the rowing um experience yeah um so and we've got a lot of training to do uh between now and june um the name of the boat is endurance endurance and people will be able to follow it where or have you not yet got the social media bit up there so there will so so sorry our, our actual boat is called endurance our yeah. team is called sea change okay um and we're on instagram like did there sea change very good yeah, yeah. That, so that was a moment of inspiration it turns out several other people have had that same okay. flash of inspiration there's a few sea changes out there um but sea change row um and we're on instagram and linkedin um and when we set off from uh when we set off on the expedition itself uh will be you can follow us on an app called yb tracker um, you can see our progress around the coast do you think the model of what you're doing will be replicable elsewhere in the world that people could do this in other countries and collect more data and then yeah absolutely and actually i know there's sort of more and more people who are interested in seeing if they can um sort of add the data collection element into some of the transatlantic rowing races but there's also people working with the sailing world so I've, we've got um edna collaborators down in new zealand who are really involved in sailing races and kitting those boats out with edna um so i think there's you know and then you can sort of scale it up into industry and actually you've got ships going all over the ocean and a massive lack of of knowledge and data so um you know there's there's opportunities to really scale this up um if you were talking to uh, uh the young cat today who who decided that her course at oxford wasn't the right one and probably getting a bit of pressure from parents and family and all the rest of it what, what, what would you say to her today well, I'd probably say the same thing that I now say to all of my younger cousins who are at about the same stage, which is, you know, you, everything you do, you take something from. Don't be afraid of a sideways step. Um, if it doesn't feel right, you know, it's not about giving up, but if something really doesn't feel right and, and you don't think you're on the, the right path, just don't be afraid to make a change because when you find yourself in the right place, you, you know, you, you learn so fast um, and you can you know, give yourself, yeah, give yourself every opportunity to be who you are um, and, and to make the, the difference and the impact that you can in the world. Well, thank you for the impact and purpose you've brought in everything that you've done. Please be careful when you're out on, on the water. Um, um, and thanks for taking the time with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of High Net Purpose. We've got monthly episodes airing throughout the year from all across the globe. Stay tuned for next time by subscribing and following us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at High Net Purpose. All content on High Net Purpose is provided as general information only. It does not constitute any advice, recommendation, or representations, and is not intended to influence listeners or users into making any specific investments or any other decisions. Please be aware that guests and presenters on High Net Purpose may have investments in any of the topics or products being discussed. Their reviews and opinions are their own and should not be taken as endorsements or financial advice. Before making financial decisions, we strongly recommend seeking advice from a qualified financial professional. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed or published in whole or part.